Welcome to Comic Sans, everyone, the podcast about comics for those who are sans knowledge. I'm Yen, a comic book reader, a reviewer, writer, consumer, eater, sometimes. Sometimes I have one with my dinner atop my pasta. <laughs> I'm done with my segment. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, it's now on you, Nat. <laughs> I couldn't tell. And I'm Nat, engineer of audio, designer of sound, eater of food. I don't eat comics, which is why I'm here. Drinker of water. Stay hydrated, folks. So here at Comic Sans, everyone, I talk to Nat about comics because Nat knows nothing about comics. It's true. We found a way to make my ignorance useful. In fact, to make my ignorance needed, almost. You know, I'm going to let the listeners decide if it's useful or needed. I mean, you need us in your ears because chances are probably not. Well, needed for the existence of this podcast. Whether the podcast itself is needed, that's a whole other question. But without me, that's a wonderful delineation. This would just be you talking to vacant space. Man, that's what I do every day. I talk to myself a lot. So, Comic Sans is a podcast where Yen talks to me about comics. The format of the show is very simple. We're going to start with a section where Yen goes into what we like to call the unhinged Yant, which is a pun on rant in case that wasn't clear. It's not a great pun, but you know, we committed to it and we're sticking with it. In this unhinged Yant, Yen will present a speech of sorts about a particular comic and a particular topic that he feels would pique my interest, would... Uh, float your boat. Would, would float my boat, would uh, um, cock my ears. <laughs> uh, trace your valleys. And after this Yant, I will then proceed to read the comic with this knowledge that he has primed my brain with. Subsequently, we will then discuss this hopefully wonderful comic that I've just read. Before we get into it, I just want to say, I got a note from our producer and, and other people, you know, other people have been calling in, sending me notes, just letting me know that I've been a bit too nice to Nat. What? Yeah, I've just been getting a lot of calls, a lot of DMs. Snail mail? You got any snail mail? I got snail mail. I've been getting a lot of post-its on my mirror, which I've been doing like memento style before I go to sleep. <laughs> I like leave it there, like be mean to Nat. And then the next morning I wake up, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'd forget. So today, everyone, I'm just going to be real mean to Nat. The arc of these five episodes has really been a roller coaster. You know, you had this whole thing where you're like going to be nicer and then that lasted for about 20 seconds. Yeah. And then yeah. now somehow you've got it into your head that you need to be mean again, even though you never really stopped being mean. So, you know, I'm just... No, gonna... I wasn't mean in episode three and four. No, I wasn't. I was too sleepy to do that. <laughs> I didn't have enough energy to do it. But today, I've paced my day. I figured out, okay, I got it. I sat in a room for six hours and stared at a wall and just prepared myself for this. I wanted to make sure I had enough energy. You know, Nat, when we started this podcast, I said to our producer, I said, there's no way we're going to do Watchmen. I said, there's no point. What the heck am I supposed to say about Watchmen that hasn't been said a million times before? But at the end of our last episode, when we read Tintin, you said you wanted something tough. Did I? You did. We, I asked you what you wanted, and you said you Damn. wanted something tough. And instantly I knew what we were going to do this week. Because there's nothing tougher than Watchmen. Not because of what's in it, though what's in it is pretty difficult and sometimes pretty formally complex, but because of its impact. But first, I'm going to tell you what Watchmen is about. Do you know anything about Watchmen? I'm excited to say that I really don't. I think my knowledge of Watchmen is bordering very close to zilch. 
Oh, thank goodness. What I will say is, I am very excited to do this episode today because I know that Watchmen is a big deal. I, I know that there was a point of time, maybe, what was it, like six, seven, eight years ago? There was a cultural moment. Was it because there was a show or a movie out? There was a TV show. Right. And I remember... There was actually a couple different things, but we'll get into that. Okay, so I have a vague memory of there being a sort of cultural moment where Watchmen was really big and I personally stayed away from it, being me, you know, not wanting to jump on the bandwagons, got to be all hipster and stuff. So I never got into it, but I know it's a big deal. And so I'm excited to see why it was a big deal and why it is a big deal. Well, now let me tell you about what happens in Watchmen. Okay. So as simply as possible, it's about what would happen if superheroes were real. But but they are. Like who? Tell me, tell, name me one superhero who's real. Firefighters. Who? Nurses. I'll say it. Firefighters, nurses. Okay. I think teachers. I think that's an uncontroversial opinion. Teachers. Yeah, firefighters, nurses, teachers, uh, politicians, lawyers. Yeah, yeah. Gamblers. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, umpires. Elephant trainers. Um, basketball players. Uh, um, chefs. Sous chefs? I'm not. I'm not certain. I'm not certain about chefs, uh, but I'll give you sous chefs. Okay. <laughs> so the story about you know if superheroes were real, that's been done to death at this point. Yeah. There's the boys, which I don't know if you've watched, but even like in the context of this show, you've already read Ultimate Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. And that was already sort of an imagination of what would happen if Spider-Man existed today. Wait, aren't all comics presentations of superheroes in our reality? Well, no, if you look at, you know, the old Spider-Man stuff we were reading, like that was not Ultimate Spider-Man, it's not read to mimic human dialogue. I see, okay. Right, and that's the case for a lot of like old superhero comics. And what is real, right? That's, you're bringing up an excellent point. What is real? At this point in time, it's what people are thinking about all the time. Like, what if superheroes are real? What if superheroes are real? And so that's why when I read Watchmen in my middle school library, I was really unimpressed. Because I had seen the idea done so many times that it felt like trite. I thought mm. Watchmen was overrated. Mm. But the thing is, is that what I know now, and you know, over the last few years, I've come to discover, you know, revisiting Watchmen every few years, that it was one of the first to do it and to really mean it. Right, and and not just in a oh, it's the twenty first century. Oh, they've got flip phones, or they've got smartphones. Or, no, it's it's specifically a deep examination of what happens to the world's biggest superpower, the United States of America, and its ideals, its dreams, its conception of itself if the superhero was real. Right, so the implications go beyond the personal to really societal. Yes, it's not just, oh, he's got to go to school and he's also Spider-Man. No, it's what does that mean about we as a global system. Human race. As a species, yeah. And so the Watchmen within their book, they're like a Justice League type team so they're a team of superheroes but what's critical to note and this is important about watchmen is that only one person actually has powers but we'll get to that hey do you know how many versions of watchmen there are i've already said my knowledge is zilch do you think i would know how many versions your knowledge is zilch okay but you said okay you said there's the tv show i I mean you told me there was a tv show i didn't know that (laughs) oh my god Oh my god, it's like talking to a brick wall that talks back. Why are you mad at me? I'm, I'm mad at you. I'm mad at you. You're mad when I know stuff about the comic and then you're mad when I don't know stuff. What Maybe do you I'm want just from mad me? mad at you as an idea, as a concept. Okay, so there's the comic. There's the original graphic novel, which, Nat, pop quiz, what defines a graphic novel? Oh, um. oh right. That was enough for me. That was all I wanted. <laughs> 
it's, the idea it's it's it's, it's um, standalone. Okay, what does standalone mean? Means that it's not like an ongoing series with like four hundred issues. Okay, which means I'm really making you say it explicitly. It's a self-contained narrative. Yeah, which it ends. Right. Yeah. So there's been the TV show by Damon Lindelof. There was the movie by Zack Snyder. There was the prequel comics. I think it's called Before Watchmen. And it's about the prior generation slash some of the stories going into Watchmen. And then there's also now a sequel, which is also part of the reason why you may have heard it in the ether, even though you definitely weren't reading it. Is that DC recently folded the Watchmen characters into the mainline Superman universe. The thing about each and every one of these creations is that according to its creator... Alan Moore, none of those matter. They are all void. They are all cheap, worthless, nothing to do with him, nothing to do with the story he told. Because his story... He wasn't involved at all? No, he wasn't involved at all. Creatively, he was not involved in any of those decisions because the rights are owned by DC and Warner Brothers. Interesting. But he doesn't want to be involved. So there's been times when people have approached him and be like, oh, can you get in on this? And he's furious. So Damon Lindelof famously sent him a gift when they announced a TV show. And he kind of tongue-in-cheek sends in the note, like, oh, I'm the new guy who's going to ruin Watchmen. <laughs> Which is really funny that he says that to Alan Moore, who is like the most curmudgeonly man ever, <laughs> who takes that seriously. He's like, yeah, you are the new guy who's going to ruin Watchmen. Oh, love it. And so there's the ending of it all, but there's also something else about why all of those are void to Alan Moore. Because Watchmen is a comic book. It is not a story that's meant to be done in other mediums. To him, it's unadaptable. So let's get into this. Let's get into Alan Moore. Oh boy, oh boy. The famed wizard himself. One of the most frightening people in comics and perhaps one of the most frightening people in the world. I never want to meet Alan Moore. I read so much of his work, but I really, truly do not want to meet him. It's a very frightening character. Well, Yen, I'm happy to say. Oh my uh, God. Next episode. <laughs> the guest we're going to have is. <laughs> You've Ellen DeGeneres me. <laughs> Bring him out, <laughs> Roshan! Uh, Alan Moore, he's a myth. He's a myth in himself. But he wasn't always. When he was first coming up, he was actually part of that British invasion we've talked about before. If you remember that, when we were talking about how Neil Gaiman got into the industry. Mm -hmm. yep, yep. He was on Swamp Thing. And he's part of this new wave of storytelling in comic books. Now, Nat, you know, I said Watchmen was about America. But then Neil Gaiman and... Alan Moore are British? <laughs> that disjunct actually is part of what makes Watchmen so spectacular. Because Alan Moore is not an American. He's not caught up in the myth of it. He's an outsider looking in, not just at comic books, but at the entire concept of a nation. Mm -hmm. Alan Moore has said in interviews that he learned who John F. Kennedy was from Mad Magazine. Is that like a tabloid magazine? Oh, he doesn't know what Mad Magazine is? No, I don't. Oh my god, people, send your notes to andasproductions at gmail.com, please. What is what is Mad Magazine? Please enlighten me. Mad Magazine is a comedy magazine. It's got comics, it's got articles, it's a big joke, it's a fun time. Right, okay. Alan Moore has been to the USA. This fact shocked me. Alan Moore has been to the USA twice in his life. Wait, like up, even up till now? Up till now, he's been to the US twice. <laughs> Whoa. He does almost all of his work from his like from the town he grew up in. And what that makes for is a writer who's a very keen understanding of the fiction of the USA. Mm. 
not just its own fiction, like the fiction it produces from its artists, but like what is the fiction of a country? What is the American projection outwards through its media? It's really going against the whole trope of write what you know. Oh, yes. I mean, I think if Alan Moore wrote what he knew, I think we'd all go insane. <laughs> like, I don't think we want to know what he knows. I don't think that's something that's on the table as, as a good thing. <laughs> he did write a novel that's semi-autobiographical called Jerusalem. And from any person I've heard, I have not read it. Every person I know who's tried to read it has said <laughs> it sends you down a winding path. That's what he knows. He knows the winding path. That's what he knows. So as part of the British invasion, Alan Moore twists Swamp Thing... And he also twists this character called Miracle Man, which he also does this incredibly graphic birth scene, which is just going to give you a hint of what's to come. And he wanted to do it again with the newly acquired Charlton Comics imprint bought by DC, which came with its whole cavalcade of characters. And so he asked DC, hey, can I use them for this crazy story I've got? And DC says, no, we want to use those characters. And the things you say you're going to do to them will make them unusable. <laughs> That's the Alan Moore guarantee. So managing editor of DC at the time, Dick Giordano, says, Alan, why don't you make your own characters? And Alan realized that actually that holds more potential because now he could make the characters feel more vague, like they appealed more broadly. Like there was something he was saying, not specifically about an existing character, but about the genre of the superhero comic, about the myth of it all. Mm. That's what Watchmen's about. Mm. It, it's about its characters, but it's also about the wider publishing landscape of which it's entering. It's about pushing superheroes to a place they haven't been before. And now today, we think of that impact as a darker, grimmer place. But Alan Moore said that he wanted to bring it to a deeper level of storytelling but all people seem to take away was, and this is Alan Moore's quote, all people seem to take away was, quote, tits and innards, end quote. He's such a grumpy guy, yeah? Oh, yeah. I love him. <laughs> and it's quite disappointing that that's the way it played out, that people just thought it was about being gory or, or having sex or just making things really grim, making things very pessimistic. But really, I think the, the greatest contribution by Moore and the artist Dave Gibbons was to bring superhero comics to a more complex place. Not just morally, but formally, on the page. And that complexity is layered. We've talked about how the comic book has multiple tools at its disposal to tell a story. And today, you're going to see one of my favorites, the nine-panel page. What's the big deal with nine panels? A three-by-three three grid, big deal. My immediate response is that it doesn't sound like a big deal because in Spider-Man, we saw like a 20-panel page. Okay. So, you know, I actually wrote down in my notes that you're going to say tic-tac-toe. So <laughs> that's actually a lot better than I, than I thought you were going to say. You, you want me to pretend that I, that's what I thought? No, it's fine. It'd be cheap now. Sudoku. Sudoku is, oh yeah, I guess so. A really simple Sudoku. <laughs> <laughs> One square Sudoku. The nine panel grid is at the very essence of Watchmen, a story that's about time and repetition and non-linearity. Because the nine panel grid is predictable, it's a system. Right, we're talking about nine panels of equal size. Oh, wait. It's a every way of, page is nine panels? Not just one page? Almost every page. Or every page within Watchmen can be structured into that. So even if the precise number of panels is, say, three, it's going to be three rows. Interesting. Okay. Wow. The whole book can be split into... What's the word for try... Triangles. Sectors. Triangles. <laughs> no, it can't be split into triangles. <laughs> The nine-panel grid is predictable. It's a system of 
entering the reader's consciousness that's only possible in the comic book. This is part of the reason why Watchmen is unfilmable. It's impossible to transplant the scale of the nine-panel grid into film. Mm. Because when you're looking at a nine-panel page, you are seeing nine panels. But you're also seeing, when you turn that page, the full composition of the page. Right, okay. You're seeing the micro and the macro all at once. And it's impossible to do that on film. Or you can do it, it'll just suck. <laughs> Every shot starts with like a bird's eye view. And then it right, it's just if they try to adapt that, it just becomes about a formal experiment. Whereas in Watchmen, it's like it makes sense where it is. I have a question, but isn't that the case with all comics? I mean, you start the act of reading a comic, that whole idea of seeing the whole page composition first before you read the individual panels, regardless of whether it's nine or ten or four. Isn't that always the case? Yes, it's always the case. But in the case of Watchmen, the nine means something. Okay, right. So when we get into, you're gonna look at these pages and you'll be like, oh, you're gonna get what I mean when you look at it. Okay. When you start flipping through it and you see, oh, wait, that transition is here, that transition is there, things like that. Get ready for my O. And the other thing is that when the nine-panel page breaks, you can't communicate that either on film. Mm. There's a moment in Watchmen that you're not going to get to, but it stops being nine panels and it becomes just one splash image. Gasp. And you really cannot communicate that on film either. So where did the nine-panel page come from? Not historically. It existed before Watchmen. But in this context of Watchmen, it came from the artist Dave Gibbons, who I mentioned earlier, another member of the British Invasion. Can I just say, what a last yeah. name. Great last name. Great name. Great last name. Gibbons? So Gibbons pinched, pit, Gibbons pinched Alan. And then he pitched him. <laughs> and then he pitched the idea to him. So a three-step process. He pinches him, and then he throws him like a fastball, and then he pitches him the idea of the nine-panel page. We don't know for certain. I don't know for certain at what point Gibbons said that. But what we do know is that the first script for issue one of Watchmen was 101 pages long. This is before paneling. Just words? This is just the words. So Alan Moore is also very exacting with his panel layouts. And it's possible, very possible, that all of that is just like madness. And it's likely that Gibbons suggested the nine panel page as a formal way to rein in this massively expanding story. Mm. So Alan Moore is famous for laying out the entire panel in immense detail and then writing at the end of the note in the script, you don't have to do this if you have a better idea. <laughs> Classic. It's, it's pretty interesting because this image we have of him is as this tyrant, this wizard, but he's also like very, at least from some people who found him to be an intensely good cooperative, collaborative partner. Can I just... I want to pull up an image of him because you're describing this man. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, look him up. Look yeah, him yeah, up right yeah. now. I just, look him I just up need right a visual And, and then you're going to know what I'm talking about. Oh, glorious. That beard? That's what I said. That hair? That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Okay, okay, saying. okay, okay. This helps a lot. This helps a lot. You know, for listeners, I really encourage you right now, just open the internet browser and search Alan Moore. Wow. Um, okay, wizard. Yep. I, get, I get wizard now. Yep, yep. Rasputin impersonator is also something that's been said. Do you think he ever smiles? Oh, I don't, you know, I think would know. <laughs> I've scrolled through like 50 images now and in none of them he's smiling. I think, I think if he smiled, we'd feel it in the fabric of the universe. I think that'd be a little crack. <laughs> and I think it's really neat like that for all his intensity and for all of this myth of Alan Moore, this mythologizing that I'm doing too right now, one of the most amazing things about Watchmen is from Dave Gibbons, which I think is something that's forgotten. Mm, mm. So today, you're going to be reading issues two and four, both even numbers. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. That's not just a nonsense thing to bring in. It's because the even numbers in Watchmen largely are origin stories. Interesting. 
But the type of origin story you're going to be reading and the way it's being told is very different from like Ultimate Spider-Man. The origin issues of Watchmen are my favorite because they're where the real psychological depth comes in. The pains of these characters, their failures, their morality. And the origin issues exist only because, and this is another fantastic thing about Watchmen, which has become this seminal text. So Alan Moore was contracted to do a 12-issue series. And he did all this plotting. And he was like, oh, no, I've only got story for six issues. <laughs> what do I put in between? <laughs> and so rather than continue the story, he slots in origin issues between each plot. Ah. And then, of course, it ends up becoming more complicated than that. And mm -hmm. Things lead into another and they bleed in and out. But at the concept stage, that's what was going on. It's almost like his hand was forced creatively and then it all kind of worked out. More than worked out. Because without the origins, Watchmen is less than half the story. Mm. It would have been missing so much of what makes the complexity of the characters and the origin stories are also the most formally experimental of the bunch. There's a later issue where Rorschach's origin is told through the eyes of a psychoanalyst. There's Miss Jupiter's issue, which is all told from the present as she recalls her fractured memories. And in the issues we're reading today, we're reading issues two and four, we get the comedian's origin and Dr. Manhattan's origin. Why these two, Yen? Ask me. Okay, are you ready? Yeah. Why these two, Yen? Oh, that's a great question, Nat. Thanks. Why not just read the first issue? Yeah, right? why not just read the first? Oh, why not read... Wait, have you ever seen Rorschach? Do you know Rorschach? Yen, stop asking me these questions that you know the answer to. What? If oh I, my, I don't know. I, I'm always I'm always stupefied by how little you know. It's incredible. If I you should knew. take it as you should take it as a sign of faith from me that I keep asking because <laughs> I just I, 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 I think so much of you. I don't. We all know I don't. If I knew who this Roshak person was, would I say that I had Zilch knowledge of Watchmen? You said you're close to Zilch. You know? You're right. I'm not gonna make you read the Roshak origin issue. Because I genuinely think you would snap in half. Are they a shock? No. Do you know what a Rorschach test is? Like the inkblot test? Vaguely. Oh my god. You know, this isn't going well. Let's move on. God. And we're not going to read the first issue either because I think that's going to get you too sucked into what actually happens in Watchmen. Because as I've learned over the years of rereading it over and over again, is that the joy is really in how it happens, how it's told to us. How do Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons relate to the page? How are they telling the story only in the ways a comic book can? Mm. Both these issues have specific relationships to time. The comedian's issue, issue two, is told through snippets of his life as experienced by the other watchmen. All you really need to know to read this issue is that the comedian has been murdered. <gasps> That's not a spoiler. That's literally the opening pages of the first issue. And you also need to know the cast of characters. Though I think all of that's going to be made clear to you in the issue. So there's Rorschach, the vigilante everyone hates. Adrian Veidt, a.k.a. Ozymandias. The genius who retired before the government outlawed heroes, because that's part of Watchmen, is that superheroes are no longer legal unless you're state-sanctioned. There's Night Owl, a guy who inherited the costume, but has since put it away when the superheroes made it illegal. And then there's Dr. Manhattan, the only one of them with actual superpowers, who's blue and has unlimited power and can toy with the laws of physics. And there's the Silk Spectre, who's another heroine who is retired, and she's also Dr. Manhattan's girlfriend. And all of them have thoughts about the comedian. 
And so even though this is the comedian's origin issue, we actually don't hear from him directly. We hear from everyone else about him. We never see his interiority. What we get instead is a mosaic of this awful man as he devolved throughout his own personal history. How his nihilism ended up swallowing him whole as the people around him watched. How we get transported into each of these flashbacks is also not about the comedian, but fixates primarily on the subjective experience of the character remembering the comedian. Mm. We are getting how everyone feels about the comedian in a way only comic books can do. Mm. It's not just zooming in, right? There's more to it than that. There's the totality of the page and also the lack of totality of his life. This issue is asking, is the comedian a snapshot of his worst moments? Is he something worse? Is he something better? Or is he none of that at all? And that takes us to issue four. What you need to know about issue four maybe is also a spoiler, but again, Watchmen isn't about the what, it's the how. Mm. In the prior issue, it's revealed that people close to Dr. Manhattan have been getting various forms of cancer, which they suspect is due to his powers, which emits radiation even he's not aware of. Mm. And so he flees Earth, despite being the USA's equivalent of a nuclear bomb. And like I said, Watchmen is also about geopolitics and what the USA is, right? And so when you lose something like that, what does that enable the Soviet Union to do? Mm. Before he flees, this is at the end of issue three, so you're not going to see this. He goes to his old base where he picks up a photo. And that's all you need to know. Okay. What I love about this issue is how it plays with time. The relationship between the caption, the dialogue, the panel, the page... Because Dr. Manhattan does not experience time like us. He experiences it all at once. And Morn Gibbons go as far as they can to show us what that would actually be like. What would that feel like? It's an incredibly conceptually daring issue where, for me, Dr. Manhattan fully comes to life. And the scale of what Morn Gibbons are ready to do are put on full display. Mm. And so Watchmen was not about telling the best superhero story. In some ways, Moore was trying to tell the last one. The final deconstruction that would force the industry to reckon with the complexities of the form and what had been neglected in casual superhero stories. Instead, the industry took its massive success to mean that darkness was what was in. That's what was attracting readers. Tits and innards. Tits and innards. The what, but not the how. That's what they thought was exciting people. Hmm. The industry missed all these incredible explorations within the forum, the intricate layered storytelling, the multi-layered themes, and focused on the little bits that were marketable, like Rorschach, like the grim dark of it all, like its catchphrase, who watches the Watchmen? The answer's obvious. We do. But how are we watching? That's a question they didn't get. Nice. Okay, so for our listeners, Nat's about to read the issue. But we do want to say, content warning, Watchmen is very difficult for people. Specifically, issue two does have a depiction of sexual assault. And we will provide timestamps for how you can skip to the discussion on part four, if you choose. And within our discussion, we also won't talk about it. Okay. Yep, that sounds good. Because it's a small part of the issue and it's skippable. And again, we're here to talk about the how, not the what. Issue two also has severe violence. So if you're feeling squeamish, just skip issue two. And issue four should be fine. Chapter two. I guess he finally reached the punchline, huh? Funny. He always thought he'd get the last laugh. Oh, what a nice transition. Jump back in time and he's in his costume. The Crime Busters. Great name. Very classic. Oh, interesting that they 
broke up a continuous scene into three panels. Oh, I like how his speech bubbles are blue too. That's cool. Don't shoot it. Oh my god, he shot her. Please. Oh. Earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Who watches the watchman? Who is this man? Opening the fridge. Ah, someone in his fridge? Oh dear. Man, this guy's broken. You're not very funny for someone who calls himself a comedian. Rorschach's journal. Heard joke once. Man goes to doctor, says he's depressed, says life seems harsh and cruel, says he feels all alone in a threatening world, where what lies ahead is vague and uncertain. Doctor says, treatment is simple. Great clown Pagliacci is in town tonight, go and see him. That should pick you up. Man bursts into tears, says, but doctor, I am Pagliacci. Damn. Good joke, good joke. Going to chapter four. All we ever see of stars are their old photographs. Wow, poetic. I am 227 million kilometers from the sun. It's light, it's already 10 minutes old. It will not reach Pluto for another two hours. Wow, this guy exists outside time. It must be exhausting. Wait, this is him? He wasn't always blue? Oh, they went from fingers touched to making love. Nice. Oh, now she's leaving. The accident is almost upon me now. Oh no, this is where he turns blue. The light is taking me to pieces. Oh, skeleton. What? Oh my gosh. He's growing body parts. Oh, now he's the blue man. And I can see his penis. They say you're like God now. The marketing boys say you need a symbol. <laughs> Dr. Manhattan. Dr. what? The name has been chosen for the ominous associations it will raise in America's enemies. They're shaping me into something gaudy and lethal. It's all getting out of my hands. I can't prevent the future. To me, it's already happening. Crime busters, we're back here. Oh, he doesn't age. His servants bring us Indonesian food. Nice. I like to imagine them just sitting around eating some nasi goreng, babi guling. Pay attention, you will all return to your homes. <laughs> what if we don't, you big blue fruit? <laughs> He's a blueberry. You misunderstand me. It was not a request. What the hell? Oh, he teleported them. Shaq. And then they had heart attacks. I am tired of this world, these people. I am tired of being caught in the tangle of their lives. Then he leaves Earth. Ooh, this is a very pink and blue spread. A world grows up around me. Am I shaping it or do its predetermined contours guide my hand? Perhaps the world is not made. Perhaps nothing is made. Perhaps it simply is, has been, will always be there. A clock without a craftsman. I'm done. I have read issues two and four. And? <laughs> I thought you were going to ask me what I thought. You know, it's just how conversation works. No, we've got no chemistry. You're getting it wrong. <laughs> Thanks for asking me what I thought, Yen. I, I mean, it, it, they were really, really enjoyable reads. I think personally, I enjoyed issue four more than issue two. I loved yes. the writing, the cuts between times and how fluid it was. Yeah, yes. so I, I really liked issue four. Issue two took a while for me to get into. 
Not sure if I entirely got into it. Maybe it was because I don't like the character. Issue two is tough. Issue two yeah. is tough. Eddie Blake is a very you know, unlikable character. And so that kind of made it feel like, why am I learning about this guy? He's kind of an asshole. In the flashbacks, I didn't really see anything redeemable about him unless it's really subtle and I missed it. I don't think it's so much that there's anything. I mean, because really we're going through some of the worst things he's ever done. If not yeah. the worst things he's done, as far as we know. The lowlights of his life. You know, it's it really says something that one of the least awful things this guy did was make a grown man cry because he burnt his map. <laughs> but then there's also, I think the thing that I'm always surprised by when I come back to Watchmen is that guy's memory of, you know, one of the comedian's old villains. The Moloch? Yeah, Moloch. Yeah. It's not so much that he's redeemable, but that he's so pitiful. Mm, mm. Like those two pages are just so like haunting. You mean the one with uh, Eddie in, in Moloch's room? Yes. Just kind of drunk ranting. Yeah. And there's yeah. that excellent, you know, this is going back to the nine panel grid, right? Mm. We're seeing the light come in and out of the room. Yeah. Because the train's going by. I really like the whole POV thing where we are like Moloch. You see our hands yeah. and, and we're in bed. It's such a vulnerable position to be in. Like you're just yeah. in bed and you've kind of let your hair down. And then this person is just doing a, a whole like soliloquy right in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. And he's so like pathetic in this moment. Yeah. Right. So there's two things going on at once in terms of like the physical presence within the page. There's that one panel when he's grabbing Moloch by the collar. Yeah. And that's like really intimidating. Yeah. And then on the next page, he's sitting at the foot of the bed and he's crying. Yeah. I mean, it screams of crazy. He's lost the plot. Well, I, that's that's the thing about the comedian. Does he ever have the plot? Right. Part of the reason he does all the awful things he does is because he's convinced that none of it matters anyway. Right. Sort of like a nihilistic I mean, and yeah. Dr. Manhattan talks about how he's so decisively amoral. Yes. And he says it was a choice. You know, it wasn't like due to stupidity or a lack of understanding. It was, what are the words he used? Let me find it. Blake's different. He understands perfectly and he doesn't care. Right. Yeah. And that's, you know, I mentioned this a little bit in the end, but that like Watchmen is very much a reflection also on nihilism. Mm. And you get that in issue two, and you get an issue four. And if we read the Rorschach issue, you would get it there too. Those are the three characters that are just convinced that, are not convinced, they're trying to figure out if anything matters. And each of them have yeah. different degrees to which they're convinced things matter or not. I mean, Dr. Manhattan sort of reminded me of the character and everything everywhere all at once, Jobu Tupaki, where she experiences everything everywhere all at once in all these universes, you know, and then it leads her to this sort of nihilistic state. And yeah, and we're going, you know, going back to this question of like, you know, we were joking about if Alan Moore wrote down everything he knows would all go insane. Right. <laughs> but that's kind of what's going on in this issue with Dr. Manhattan, right? Where we can't even understand... It's a glimpse into his brain. We're getting a glimpse into this omniscient, omnipotent character's brain and we cannot comprehend it. The only reason we can comprehend it is because of how it exists on the page. How do you feel about this character who is like above space and time, but yet still developing love interests? Yeah, that's that's kind of the, the interesting thing. That's one of the really fascinating things about the construction of Dr. Manhattan is that he has the powers of a god and in theory no longer possesses the biology that would drive human beings. Yeah. Right? And like, he shouldn't contain that fallibility anymore. Yeah. But it's almost as if just to exist, just to be able to make choices, means that you're going to be flawed. 
Do we want to talk about that nine panel page? Um, yeah. I mean, I definitely see. I was just about to ask you which yeah. were the ones which you which struck you when it did it or when it didn't do it. When were the moments you were like thinking about it? What was really interesting, I think I said this, you know, when I was reading is, I think it happened in, in, I'm not sure in four, but definitely in two, when like the panel could have worked as like a three panel long, like it's continuous, but they still- So Nat's talking about page yeah. 10. Okay, let's go And on page, page 10, of issue the top two. row of issue two, Yeah, um, the top row is a three panels. And in the first panel, it's Night Owl and Rorschach and Silk Spectre. And the second panel is Dr. Manhattan and his then wife. And the third panel is the comedian Adrian Veidt and Nelly or Nelson. But then going through all three panels is Eddie, right? And like his legs kind of like extend through the panels to show that it's connected and it's all one panoramic scene. But there are still the sort of panel breaks in between the three panels. Yeah, that was something that I was like, oh, what? Why, Why did they do that? I mean, I guess... On one hand, formally, it's just to allow that... Because in the second panel, you have the speech bubble that's kind of connected to the edge of the panel, which suggests that someone's speaking off the page, um, off the panel. So I guess it allows you to do that, but I don't know. Do you have more to say about this and and why you think... Oh, I've got so much to say about this. I'm so glad that you brought it up when you were reading it. Okay, so on the most basic level, Eddie is the only character that straddles all three panels. Yeah. So he's instantly in a state of power. He's in the foreground. But then he's also behind the gutters, right? Mm, mm. So he's in the foreground, but he's also not above the panels. Right. Right? And I think that kind of speaks to the perspective of Eddie, of everything is a joke, everything is nonsense, nothing matters. Like he still exists within the story. Even he can't escape the confines of the nine panel page, despite that knowledge. Mm. And that's part of the thing that drives him insane, right? He thinks he understands it. And then in those last pages with Moloch, he's still at a loss. Right, right. That's one aspect of it. So that's the Eddie aspect of it. The other thing about it, and this is really wonderful stuff. So in issue four, do you remember this moment when Dr. Manhattan is at this meeting? Yes, I think I mentioned it as well. Like we're back at the Crime Busters, right? Yeah. The reason that's so incredible is that this is issue two. So this is the first time we as readers are encountering the crime busters or the Mm -hmm. idea of the crime busters. But the thing is, is that each of these characters in their origin stories will remember this moment. And this three panel row is signaling to us that each of them have their own perspective on this moment. Right. Because they're all there. They're all there and they're Mm. each given their own little space. Hmm. Right, so in issue four, Dr. Manhattan remembers this moment of meeting right. the Silk Spectre for the first time. And in the second panel, you see Dr. Manhattan with Janie on his arm. And then and the, she's furious. Um, yeah, and the panel to the left, you see Silk Spectre. So there's a separation there, but then it's like, but then his arm, his arm bleeds into the first panel. Yes, mm. yes. And it's one of those incredible things that makes Watchmen so rewarding on each read. Because maybe p- potential there's like, oh, maybe we are overreading, but I don't know if overreading really exists. If the tools exist there, if the author intended it or not, maybe we don't need a care. Maybe we can interpret it as we like. But that's another realm of discussion. Mm. And one of the things that I really love about this, and I won't say much about it, but Adrian Veidt over the corner of Eddie's shoulder. Mm-hmm. And that's foreshadowing that Adrian is actually taking this whole meeting in a very different way than everyone else. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And that comes out to play in the final issues, the last few issues. And it seems like nothing here, but it is huge. Yeah. 
Where else did you notice in the nine panel grid? There was another moment where they did the three broken connected panel. It's on page... I think it's 16. Yes, page 16. I don't recognize the three characters per se. Who was the one on the left? That's Adrian. Okay, and then the one on the right? Is Night Owl. Okay, and I assume they also have their own individual takes of this moment in the funeral of some... Is that that kind of where we're going with this? Well, it's a little bit of foreshadowing. We're not super sure what exactly this means. People who have read Watchmen will know that Dr. Manhattan's relationship with ashes or how he creates a set of ashes is really important in the right. last issue. Okay, right. And the ashes to ashes. Earth to earth is also important for Adrian. So it's actually the way this text is connecting to each of them also and it's uh, allowing it to sit on each of them in different ways, yeah. which is which banners more in rereading and may not be self-evident here. Though I think Night Owls is the clearest, right? We go dust to dust and immediately we go to this gas Mm, mm. You know, the comedian gassing all these people protesting. Mm, mm. And there's this, you know, on the end of that page, right? At the end of page 17, talking about the three panel. Yeah. Because the three panel also gives you room to breathe when you expand it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. And so we're cluttered with all these words across the first two rows, which is all these words, bunch of panels, bunch of panels, all this noise. And the last one is this spread out row. And it's just the night owl and the comedian from very far away. And Night Owl is saying, protection, who are we protecting them from? Mm -hmm. And the space of that moment really, you know, helps us focus on what's going on right here. Yeah, with all the destruction around them. and Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, speaking about those moments of sort of expansion and collapsing the panels, there are a few cool ones. I think the one where in issue four, when Dr. Manhattan goes huge. Oh, yes. Yeah, on like page 20 of issue four. That was yes. a, that's that's a real moment there, with the helicopter. And you see, him. it still abides geometrically by the nine right, panel right. rule. Because I think previously before this, I've only seen the horizontal collapsing, but this is like a vertical collapse. Yes, and it actually combines six panels into one. Yeah, and it's communicating us to the scale of his power, yep. but not just as oh he's huge. It's not just that he's literally huge; it's that he's altering the page. Mm-hmm. He's so large that he can change how we understand the thing we're looking at. Yeah. And how can you film that? How could you possibly like unless you're gonna tell well, me? Your I'm sure you could argue you, you could film. Your screen in this moment is gonna rise. The <laughs> right. aspect ratio changes, which actually is something that did you know? Um, is something that they use in everything, ever, all at once. Different aspect ratios for different universes. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, yes. just a random. And so the aspect ratio, and I'm not, you know, I'm not knocking on film. I'm not saying film can't achieve anything, right? I'm just saying the tools are very different, and trying to adapt some of the tools that in comic books into film just really doesn't. It's just not possible. So mm. you have to figure out different tools if you if you really want to do that. Can I say something potentially controversial about the nine panel page? Sure. So in issue four, when I was approaching the end, right, I knew yeah. I was about to turn to the last page. And I think something yeah. about like having read things like Saga with the way that they end their issues and even like to a certain right. extent Tintin, right? And that last panel of the, oh, yeah. the Yeti looking forlornly out at the moving. Yes. Something in me expected something more monumental in this last page, but then I just, you just get like pretty much another nine page panel and I just felt it was a little underwhelming. Like I would have loved to see like a bigger panel of the meteor shower, you know? Is you it- know, you are getting the right impulse. You are experiencing the thing that Alan Moore is trying to create in the reader, and it's something that he only delivers in issue 12. What do you mean? The momentous moment. Mm. Yeah. In terms of breaking the nine panel format. And, right. And so you see, he's saving it for later. He's saving it for way later. And when it happens, 
there is this sense of immense release, right? Almost like a devastating catharsis because you're like, oh my god, the content of those pages is devastating, and how it's being mm. shown to us is mm. only enhancing that. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah, I guess I was just sort of you know you've, you've primed me to expect like an issue closer, right? But also, I yeah. guess just to clarify, these were not released as issues, right? They were not. They were released as issues. Oh, okay. Okay. They were released as issues, but because Watchmen has become this insane touchstone, mm. I don't know anyone who read it issue by issue. I've never even, and I spent a lot of time in comic book shops and looking at the old issues, I've never even seen the single issues for Watchmen. Right, right. So actually, Nat, you brought up the page turn moments. Yeah, some of them, yeah. And I want to go back to issue two just for a little bit. Sure. And I want to talk about the transition moments. Okay, I'm on issue two. So, you know, did you notice how we were cutting in and out of these flashbacks? Like, did you notice any of the tools they were using? I noticed one of the transition moments, which was there were like four panels of, what's his face? Adrian? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, it zooms right, in. Go closer, goes, closer, yeah, closer. So the first one yeah. is like kind of zoomed out and then you go closer, yeah. closer. And then the fourth one is the most zoomed in, but he's wearing his costume and then we're in the crime buster scene. Yeah, and then how do we leave that? To be honest, can I just say at that moment I verbally appreciated it, but then in my head I was like, "You can do that in film. I can see someone doing that in film." No, but the thing is, is that you also look at the whole page, right? Could you do that in film? Could you show me where we're about to go at the same time? No, you can't. Fair. Seeing the macro before the micro. Yeah, because on the top row is little panels of Adrian zooming in in a very shadowy environment and the rest of the page is this pretty big image of all of the crime busters gathering with very well lit. Mm -hmm. And so the contrast is evident there. Like you know the transition is coming. You can anticipate the transition. You know we're about to move somewhere else. Sorry, I know we're jumping all over the place but I just want to say link to what you just talked about about that that whole transition and the macro thing. There was a moment that really worked for me which is page 8 of issue 4 when he's about to get zapped by the machine and you have that like Again, that six-panel collapse of the whole skeleton. So you know that's that moment's coming and he's being like hit by all that radiation and whatever. The scene that Nat's describing is, yeah, the first two panels are John in the blue chamber with the blue light. And then that third panel, which is that flashback to the beer, which is, that was was chef's kiss. Which is glowing yellow, Mm. right? And the bottom six panels are taken up by this big image of John's skeleton being obliterated by this, you know, yeah. nuclear force. So this was the moment where I recalled what you said about seeing the macro before the micro and sort of letting that be an anticipatory sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And that goes back to, again, incredible stuff by Moore and Gibbons because this goes back to the very central thing I was talking about, which is that the form is replicating the content. Mm. We are experiencing that page the same way Dr. Manhattan experiences time. Oh, okay. I didn't think about that. He's getting the mini moments and he's getting the macro moments. Right. Right? He's getting the now and he's getting the next and he's getting the before all at the same time. Mm. And so in a way, we're almost reading all of Watchmen through the nine-panel grid like Dr. Manhattan would. Interesting. And is he the sort of central protagonist? There is no central protagonist for Watchmen. Each of them have their own fair amount of time their own role to play in the narrative. For me, when I was reading it as a middle schooler, I always thought Night Owl was the protagonist just because he was the most, he was the least morally ambiguous of all the characters. (laughs) And so he was the easiest one for me to understand. When I read this issue, when I was like, I don't know, 13, which was definitely way too young for me to be reading Watchmen. Mm, Yes, definitely. When I read this issue, I just was like, (laughs) what? What's going on? Wait, which one? Issue two or four? 
oh, both. Oh. But for two, I was like, oh, I don't, <laughs> I don't think I should. I don't, I don't think I should be experiencing did your this moment. Did your mother know, Yen? No, it's a libraries, man. It's libraries. But we still love our libraries, even though they could, we they, love our they libraries. potentially expose young minds to things they should not be seeing. But now look how much I love Watchmen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so anyway, back to the nine panel page. We're talking about the moments where it collapses, where you see the macro before the micro. Oh, yeah. Well, okay. Let's go to page 20 of issue two. Okay. I'm gonna and you, I want you to describe to the listener what, what that oh, means. Oh, this is a good one. This is a good one. So this, this, yeah. this whole page basically has almost zero dialogue. The first six panels are just showing this character, what's his name again? Moloch. Moloch. Leaving the yeah. funeral. First panel is him walking down an alley. Second panel is him opening his door. Third panel is him hanging his coat. Fourth panel is him washing a cup. And then he makes himself a cup of tea. And then he cracks open his fridge. And then the bottom three panels are combined. And then a road shark jumps out of his fridge. Questionable how he does that. Uh, it's, it's so crazy. <laughs> like how uh, long was so... he in there? Did he have to remove yeah. the shelves, you think? I, you know, I think he did. Rorschach is... And this is why, and this is one of the big things about the grim dark of it all, about the influence of Watchmen on the world, mm-hmm. on the industry, is that a lot of people took... The publishers took it to be like, oh, Rorschach's so cool. And that's how some readers took it to be too. Like, oh, he's so, he's so harsh. He's so edgy. But Alan Moore has explicitly said that Rorschach to him was a joke. Not like a joke, it's a ha-ha joke, but like a joke the comedian would tell, right? Where like, look at this man, this grown man who's going to hide in a fridge (laughs) for who knows how many hours to jump out at this 80-year-old man who he could have taken down anywhere. He could have hit anywhere. He could have hit under the bed. He could have sat on the sofa. And what if, what if Moloch never went to open the fridge? (laughs) <laughs> I you know there's so many good things about it right there's so many good things and and the issue ends on Rorschach's little monologue yeah it's just this self-serious disturbed man and and do we never get to see his identity because Rorschach's yeah because there was a whole thing in issue 4 about Mr. Manhattan saying that when they put the ban on vigilantes only Rorschach didn't reveal himself okay so uh, spoiler for readers who don't okay, know never do mind. Spoiler no, don't spoil it for me don't spoil it for me don't spoil it for me Okay, because I'm gonna—I'm not actually gonna spoil it for you. All the information is in this issue. Okay, but it takes a very careful reader to notice. Mm. Yeah, which is which is again <laughs> this crazy thing of what Gibbons and Moore are doing. It's like there are details that yeah. are so huge that you can miss. I can see why Watchmen lends itself to rereading more so than I would say like the Ultimate Spider-Man. Yeah, because. You can tell that there's so much thought and care put into the details that you could totally miss on first read. One of those details. And so, you know, I just also want to preface. So Alan Moore has also stated that, you know, he's upset about the influence of Rorschach and the grimdark of it all. And he's also said that he's not happy with the violence against women that occurs in Watchmen. Mm -hmm. Because it's very graphic. Like in hindsight is what he said. In hindsight, in hindsight. Yeah, because I mean, he did it in the end, at the end of the day. Yeah, he it did was him. It. He did write it. And, you know, I'm absolutely not advocating for cancelling Watchmen. Right. I think readers just need to be aware of what they're going into. Yeah. In no way does it glorify or, no. you know, No, it does not glorify it. It yeah, does not yeah. romanticize so it. worth saying. It doesn't yeah. even simplify it. I think that's what makes Watchmen so complicated is that, like, it doesn't. Yeah. So, on that note, I want to know if you noticed this. Did you notice something similar about how. 
Laurie and Janie were portrayed in issue 4. Something similar about how Laurie and Janie were portrayed in issue 4. Give me some clues. Like artistically? Yes, visually. I mean, they look kind of similar. Okay. <laughs> a little bit. I want you to go to page 11. Okay. Middle bottom panel. Describe to me what it is. It's oh okay 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 I know I know what you're going for here. But so describe it on page eleven, middle bottom panel, we see Doctor Manhattan or John's two hands around her face as she looks up at him. Yes, and then and I think you see that again with Laurie, right? On page seventeen, there we go. Yep, but it's mirrored, so his hands are coming in from the left rather than the right. Her facial expression is a bit different. She seems to enjoy this caress more than Janie did. But the caress is the same. Yeah, it is. Right, and so what is that telling us about him? He only has one move. Okay. He's a one-trick pony. He's a one-trick pony. But or, or also that the people around him are interchangeable. Right, right. Right, they can be swapped mm. in, they can be swapped out. It's just filling a void of sorts. Yeah, and he is swapping in and swapping out people. Oh, totally, yeah. I want to point out that as of recording, two weeks ago was the anniversary, or a month ago, roughly, was an anniversary of a circulatory system walking through the kitchen. <laughs> what? Oh, because oh, he dates it. <laughs> he dates it. He dates his reassembling of components in the correct sequence <laughs> until he eventually manifests on November 22nd. That part was wild to me when I saw that like brain with eyes. So he, he manipulates the atomic structure of his being to reconstruct himself. Yes. Right? Yes. That's insane. I mean, so the, so yeah, I mean, that's part of why it's like, you know, Watchmen is like also this big literary text, but just in terms of superhero stuff, <laughs> Dr. Manhattan's powers are just like, whoa! <laughs> so this power set of Dr. Manhattan is also really what's exciting. Like, that's part of the juice of Watchmen, unfortunately. And that's why Dr. Manhattan now exists in the DC universe. Wait, what do you mean the power set? Like his ability to manipulate the entire universe, essentially. You know, right, he can right. Transform, he can reform anything, right? Yeah. And I'm not reading it because maybe maybe it's the Puritan in me. I, I side with Alan Moore. If Alan Moore says these characters are done, I trust that. But I get snippets of it just from reading comic book journalism and stuff. And right now, there's a new character in DC who is the Watchman. No! Wait. And it's just beyond parody at this point. And wait, so is it Dr. Manhattan or is someone else? I, I don't know. I you know the thing I read I think was that it's Dr. Manhattan and Laurie's child. Oh. But Dr. Manhattan would still be around because he doesn't age. So it's really just cashing in without understanding the key tenets yeah. of the concept. It's playing with action figures when actually you're looking at an encyclopedia. Yeah. <laughs> you know, with that little context you've given me, I can imagine Alan Moore's sort of grief. Yes. You know, yes. he's built such a complex, layered undoubtedly overpowered, but that is part of the story, right? Like, right. it's not to a fault. The overpowering of this character is the character. Yes. And it's how he comes to terms or how he exists with this magnitude of power and how that has implications on everyone around him. And like, you can understand how a sort of a simplification of that would be painful to endure. Spoken like a true convert. I've done my job. <laughs> 
Nat, here are my two questions. Do you see the value of Watchmen? No, it's great. It's great. I really enjoyed issue two and four. I can totally see myself reading the entire graphic. Why do you never let me ask my second question? My second question is, will it, you keep reading? It flows naturally. Yes, yes. Okay, I, I can see myself reading this in entirety. But would you recommend I not consume the TV show and movies? So we've discussed that we wouldn't let you read the rest of Saga. Yeah. If you want to read the rest of Watchmen, you are more than welcome to read the rest okay. of Watchmen. Because it's so singular in its style and approach. Right. That I don't think it would affect how you read the others, honestly. Because it's just so unlike that. And it's so mm-hmm. literary that you'll approach it totally differently. Mm. Yeah, I would. You know, I don't think you need to watch the TV or the movie. No, I don't think you need to do either of those things. I think you've got the best version of it in your hands. Yeah, because honestly, it's different because for Spider-Man, I had already watched, you know, the movies. And then I wasn't vibing with the comics so much. But having read what I've read, I don't feel a desire to watch the movies or the TV shows for some reason. Oh, that makes me so happy. That makes me so happy. To hear. Because I feel like... I'm going to be nice next episode, everyone. <laughs> I feel like... I'm being honest here. Like, you know, and I have yeah. to be honest. I feel like the medium delivers the story, especially in issue four, that medium delivers the story so well that I don't feel like it needs to be enhanced by another medium and what another medium can bring. Delicious. I'm going to take what you just said and I'm going to cut it into little slices and I'm just going to eat that over the rest you can, of the You can use it as your alarm every morning. I'll remix it into a track for you so we've come to the end of this episode everyone but Nat next week we're gonna go super simple and I will say you know know, just because we need to maintain the premise of this podcast I think Yen you've won this battle but the war is not over Okay, whatever. Um, I don't care. <laughs> and I don't say that facetiously. I mean, I mean it in the sense that like, you would agree that there is so much more to the world of comics than just Watchmen. Watchmen yes. is singular. Yes. It is sort of, you know, in its own sphere, in its own realm. But there is so much more to discuss and so much more for me to learn and to experience about the world of comics. Some of which I might like, some of which I might not like. So, you know, who's to know? Well, yeah. Well, next episode, we're going to look at an extremely recent form that's gained a lot of prevalence. There's going to be a lot less words. And formally, it's going to be very different. And I'm very excited to let you know, Nat, you're going to be reading it from your phone. Oh, I thought you were going to say blindfolded. I don't know why that was the first thing that came to my mind. Why would you? No, <laughs> what? You're going to be reading it with your ears plugged. <laughs> from my phone. Oh, a webcomic. Yes, indeed. Ooh. Wow. Mr. Sherlock over here. Ooh. I, okay, that's, that is a very, very big pivot. I'm actually very excited for that. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you on the next page. See ya. Thanks for listening to Comic Sense. This is an Andas Productions show hosted by Mao Yente and Nathaniel Ma and produced by Roshan Singh Sambi. Our cover art is by Isabel Fang and marketing by Siobhan Lek. Follow us on social media at the links in the description and stay tuned for weekly releases of our eight-episode first season.